Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke. This morning we are looking at Luke chapter 9, and beginning in verse 49, reading through verse, 40, or verse 56, Luke 9, 49 through 56. Please give your attention to God's Word. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him <clears throat> excuse me, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans, to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. I've often said that science fiction stories are effective because what they often do is they take cultural issues that we're dealing with in our context and then translate them into alien worlds and strange settings so that we can look at them from a different perspective and see them maybe in a way that we can't see them in our own cultural situation. For instance, in a classic episode of the very first Star Trek series from the 1960s, Captain Kirk and the Enterprise bring on board two powerful aliens, one who is chasing the other one, and they deeply despise one another, and they are in war with, against one another. These aliens that they take in, they look human, except that one half of their bodies is black as ink, and the other half of their body is white as snow. And so as Captain Kirk and the crew try to keep them apart, keep them from fighting, try to figure out why they hate each other so much, why and why their whole planet is in a ages-long civil war between the two, he tries to what what's this all about? What's causing the conflict? And what they find out is that the problem, what the, the root of the conflict is the fact that some of the people on this planet are black as ink on the right side and white as snow on the left side and the others on this planet are white as snow on the left side and black as ink on the right side. Anyway, wherever that goes, they're opposite sides. And so the show ends actually after trying to deal with this hostility through the entire show. The show ends when they arrive at this planet and find out that there is no intelligent life there, that these two groups of people have annihilated each other in their civil war. As a matter of fact, the two, the last two of their race, they escape the Enterprise and beam down to the planet so that they can continue their fight there, just the two of them. The last dialogue in the show is Lieutenant Uhura saying, this doesn't make sense. And Spock says, to expect sense from mentalities with such extreme viewpoints is not logical. 
Sounds like Mr. Spock could be even viewing our own time with such extreme views, not being able to even dialogue, let alone cohabitate on the planet. The message obviously was very heavy-handed, but it was clear that many of the things that divide us, like the color of our skin, would look silly and foolish to outside observers if we were able to have them. But that's not always the case. The things that divide us are not always superficial and silly. Sometimes we divide over very substantial things, very serious issues. I'm sure like many of you, I spent quite a bit of time when I was able to this past week watching the Senate confirmation hearings for the proposed uh, justice for the Supreme Court, Amy Coney Barrett. And I actually, for the first time, listened to those political leaders in our country, I actually enjoyed listening to them debate some very substantial issues because a lot of the controversy over this Supreme Court justice is her view of the Constitution and how it should be interpreted. And this is a foundational issue of our whole nation, our country. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a, it was really encouraging to me to hear intelligent debate over really substantial issues like this. So there are reasons that divide us because they're very serious issues. It's an extremely relevant issue for us Christians because we have some pretty strong views. We're very set in our understanding of what God's word teaches. And so how are we to live in a time when people have not uh, seem to have lost the ability to disagree and the culture is so deeply divided? What is worth dividing over? And when division is necessary, what does it look like? How should we do it? I think these are two important relevant questions that this passage deals with. I think it, it, these are two questions that Jesus is trying to teach his disciples about. What's worth dividing over? And when we divide, what does that look like? Many people would claim that Jesus came to do away with all divisions on earth. Many people would claim that if you really followed the teachings of Jesus, we would be at peace with everyone. Everyone would be at peace with one another. That there would be no divisions on earth. But that's not what Jesus taught. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Jesus came and brought truth that would divide even the closest relationships we have on earth, those with our own family, in many cases. It may be hard for us to believe, but the most divisive person in history is not Donald Trump. The most divisive person in history is Jesus Christ. So how do we as followers of Jesus Christ live in times like these? How do we live by both grace and truth? Well, in this passage, it's a very short passage, but Jesus teaches two lessons. He addresses two kinds of division. And then he talks about two ways to handle those divisions. How do we respond to division? And the first lesson he's teaching is that we need to seek unity 
with those who truly follow Christ. In other words, we must fight against division among those who truly follow Christ. In verse 49, John comes to tell Jesus that he and some of the other disciples were out and about and they saw a, somebody casting out demons in the name of Jesus Christ. And he says, we tried to stop him. Now, why would John and some of the disciples think that was a problem? Why would anybody be opposed to somebody casting out demons? Well, back in verse 1, if you'll notice, back in the very beginning of chapter 9, at that point, Jesus had been training his disciples, but at that point, he actually calls them to himself, grants them power and authority, it says, over all the demons and to cure diseases, and then he sends them out to preach the gospel, cast out demons, and heal the sick. And so in, at that point, it was kind of a unique commissioning where he gives power and authority to his disciples, the 12 disciples, the ones who would become the, the apostles. To, and he sends, that's the word apostle means, actually, is one who's sent out with authority and power. And so it's entirely possible that John is actually concerned that things be done rightly in the kingdom of God, that you don't have people out there without credentials, people that haven't been commissioned, haven't been directly sent by Jesus to do things like casting out demons and heal and preach. It could be that they just want things to be done decently in order, like good Presbyterians. But it is also not very hard for us to imagine that the, John and these other disciples are opposed to kind of freelance exorcists out of a sense of rivalry or out of a sense of superiority. You almost read it in the language of what John says, they were not of us. They were not one of us. He was not in our circle. He was not part of the 12. And yet he was doing what we were sent to do. It's kind of ironic because if you remember back in verse 40, we saw that some of the disciples just, just shortly before this time had been chastised by Jesus because they were unable to cast a demon out of a young boy because of their weak faith. And yet here they are pointing at somebody who is casting out demons by the name and by the authority of Jesus Christ and saying, stop doing that because you're not one of us. That's kind of a, a phrase that we have to be on guard against in the church. You know, I don't accept you because you're not one of us. How are you defining what that means? In verse 50, Jesus says, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. There's a principle of his kingdom. The one who is not against you is for you. Whoever this man was, he was casting out demons by faith in Christ. He believed in the power of Christ. He believed in the authority of Christ. And he did it in the name of Christ. When the scriptures uses that phrase, in the name of Christ, it means in accordance with who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do. In his name, demons are being cast out. And if somebody's casting out demons in the name and by the authority and the power of Jesus Christ, then they're on the right side of the spiritual war that's going on in the cosmos. They are against the evil one. They are against the demons. They are, they are about releasing the captives, those who are enslaved to demons. 
It's interesting, in Mark's account of the same dialogue between Jesus and John and the other apostles, Mark includes this other statement that Jesus said that Luke doesn't include. He said, do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon afterward speak evil of me. You see, that's what it's all about. Is Christ being glorified in this or is he not? Jesus here is, again, making the claim that it's all about who he is. Those who are for him and those who are against him. That's the dividing point of all mankind. Who is for him and who is against him? It's interesting, over in Matthew chapter 12, in a different context, but also in the context of spiritual warfare and casting out demons, in Matthew 12, Jesus says the same principle, but he actually says it opposite. He says in Matthew 12, 30, whoever is not with me is against me. You see, here he says, whoever is not against you is for you, if you belong to him. And in that other context, whoever is not with me is against me. It's all about him. He is the dividing point of mankind. There is no neutrality when it comes to Christ. People may say they don't, they're agnostic about Christ, they don't care about Christ, they haven't formed an opinion about Christ, but in reality, from God's perspective, you're either for his son or you're against his son. Some people are just much more obvious about it than others. Jesus is basically saying to us, if somebody is on my side, then he's on your side. If somebody's for me, then you are for me as well. Every true disciple is in process. And maybe they are not as far along in their sanctification process, in their pursuit of holiness, in their understanding of the word of God. But if their faith in Jesus is genuine, and the Jesus that they believe in and trust in is the Jesus that is revealed to us in God's word, in the scriptures, then they are with us. They are one of us. What Jesus is warning against here is a form of sin that we would call exclusivism or sectarianism. Trying, and what it really comes down to, is it's trying to make the church of Jesus Christ smaller and more exclusive than he has made it. That is wrong, to try to make the church of Jesus Christ smaller and more exclusive than he has made it. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary on his passage, said, Thousands in every period of church history have spent their lives in copying John's mistake. They have imagined in their petty conceit that no man can be a soldier of Christ unless he wears their uniform and fights in their regiment. It's interesting in scripture, there's a couple of examples of of God's people wrestling through this issue. One of them comes from way back at the beginning of the Old Testament, back in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 11. In that chapter, the Holy Spirit descends upon Moses and the 70 elders who are leading the Israelites in the wilderness. And the Holy Spirit comes upon them in a very New Testament way. It's kind of a little foreshadowing of the New Testament. And the Holy Spirit comes upon the leaders, Moses and the other leaders, the elders of Israel, and they begin to prophesy as a spirit-given, they give spirit-given uh, revelations, utterances. 
And then somebody, while this is happening, somebody comes from another part of the camp, another part of the, of the camp of the Israelites, and says, hey, there's two guys on the other side of the camp, two guys named Eldad and Medad, and they're prophesying, but they're not one of us. They're not with us. And so Joshua says to Moses, my Lord, Moses, stop them. This isn't right. Do you remember how Moses replied? He said, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. If this is of the Lord, do not oppose it. Interestingly, in the New Testament, you have a similar sort of situation where Paul is writing the letter to the church in Philippi and he's in prison. And because he's in prison, some of the other teachers, leaders in the church there in Philipp, where he is in prison, we're not quite sure where the prison actually is located, but some of the other leaders in the church there are going out and they're preaching the gospel more boldly because Paul is in prison. And he talks about what they're motivated by, why they're out there preaching the gospel in response to him being placed in prison. And listen to what he says in Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? He says, what then? These questions, how should we respond to this? He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Paul did not rejoice in their wrong motivations for preaching the gospel, but he rejoiced that whatever the motivation, the Christ of the scriptures was being preached. The gospel was being preached. People were hearing the truth. And so what Paul is able to do is leave it to God to judge people's hearts and motivations and intentions. What he rejoiced in is that the word of God is going forward and people are hearing the gospel that they need to hear. And so that speaks to us about how we deal with the fact that not everybody is in our circle. There are some people who are genuinely preaching the true Christ and preaching the true gospel but they're not one of us. They're not in our denominational circle. They're not in our ecclesiastical circle. They're not in our friend circle. They're not doing it the way we do it, maybe. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul makes a very clear statement about the imperative for Christians to have church unity as a major focus, a major goal, something you strive for in your life and something that churches should strive for. He says in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of denominations, but there is only one church of Jesus Christ. 
And it is difficult, but we must strive to be unified with all who are our true brothers in faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and those who believe and preach the true gospel. Of course, that doesn't mean that we are to seek unity with every preacher, every church, every denomination that claims to follow Jesus Christ. It's because there is only one Jesus Christ. Nobody gets to make up who Jesus is. The Jesus of the scriptures is the one that we follow. The gospel taught in the scriptures is the gospel we preach. And if anybody comes to you with any other gospel, Paul says, let them be accursed. Be divided. Divide over who Jesus is and what he has done to save us. Divide over that. But if somebody preaches the biblical Christ and teaches and shares the biblical gospel, then they are one of us. There's a phrase that often is used that unity must never come at the expense of truth. And so we must divide over those who teach a different Christ and teach a different gospel, but we must strive for unity with those who agree with us on those essentials. Which reminds me of another phrase that has been helpful through many generations of the church. You've heard it before, I'm sure. It goes this way. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. It's a very common phrase used in the church, and it's an attempt to try to do this, to strive for both truth and unity at the same time. Some churches, in this struggle for both truth and unity, some churches will refuse to interact with any other person who claims to be a Christian who doesn't agree with them on every little detail of doctrine. And so what they're doing is they make the church smaller than Christ has made it. They say, you have to agree with us on both the essentials and the non-essentials, or you can't be one of us. And that's being sinfully exclusive. But then you have some other churches who try to only teach the essentials and keep all of the focus on just the essentials and not get into any of the non-essentials, some of the secondary issues, issues like baptism, which Bill mentioned earlier. They don't want to get into any of those issues lest it be divisive and lest they not be able to include as many people as possible. And that's an error as well because those secondary issues are important. We're given the whole scriptures, the whole counsel of God in all of God's word to help us to know what it means to be a disciple and to serve him in this world. And so we need to dig into those secondary issues, the non-essentials that are still important truths from scripture. And we need to be teaching these things to our children. We need to be pursuing biblical doctrine to the nth degree to try to understand God's word as best we can in this fallen world looking through a glass darkly. And we're going to disagree in our interpretations. We're going to have brothers and sisters in Christ who interpret things like baptism and things like that differently than we do. They are still one of us. They still are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We just can't agree on all the secondary issues. But when it comes to the essentials, who is Jesus and why did he come? We're together. We have unity in Christ. There's one Lord. When we, somebody wants to become a member of Oakwood, we tell them, you only have to profess the biblical Christ and the, profess the biblical gospel, belief in the biblical gospel in order to be a member of Oakwood. That's all it required. You have to believe and confirm the gospel of Jesus Christ, believe in the biblical Christ, and make a commitment to follow him 
and also be a part of this church. That's all it takes to be a member. You don't have to believe in all the secondary doctrine. You don't have to affirm all the, the, the non-essentials. You don't have to be able to memorize the Westminster Confession of Faith and, and affirm every statement in it. We don't require that because it's faith in Christ that makes you part of us, that makes you one of us. But those things are still important, and we're still going to teach them. And we're going to try to convince you that, that that's our understanding of what the Scriptures teach. But we're accountable to the Scriptures and to the Scriptures alone. So Jesus teaches here that we are to love our blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ. Those who are ministering in the name of Christ by his power and authority who preached the gospel that he taught us. But what about those who reject Christ? There are times we have to divide. We've talked about that. What about those who reject Christ? How do we interact with them? Well, the second lesson is, begins in verse 51, the second part of this short passage, where Jesus teaches his disciples to show grace to those who reject Christ. In verse 51, it says that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is kind of a turning point. Many commentaries will have a breaking point here in the Gospel of Luke. Even though it's in the middle, there is a focus that comes into Jesus' ministry at this point. He sets his face. That's a Jewish way of saying he made it his resolute purpose to get to Jerusalem to complete his mission. And of course, his mission was to, to die for our sins, to go to the cross, to be crucified in our place so that our sins can be forgiven, so that the wrath of God can be poured out upon him for what we deserve, for the sins that we've committed but it's interesting that what it says there, it doesn't focus on the crucifixion. It says that he's focused on him being taken up. What does that refer to? Well, he was taken up in his ascension after the resurrection. After he was crucified, after he spent three days in the tomb, he walked out of the tomb, resurrected from the dead, and then 40 days later, he ascended to the Father and took his throne in heaven. And so Jesus is, yes, focused on going to Jerusalem because he must make atonement for the sins of God's people. But ultimately, his focus was on the ascension, the victory over death, the victory over sin, the victory over Satan, when he would ascend to the right hand of the Father and return into the Father's presence. Reminds me of what Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says. It says, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It was that victory over death that we share in, through faith in him. Well, so in leaving Galilee and heading towards Jerusalem, they would have to go through the Samaritan territories. And there was a village, short, you know, just a little ways up the road. And so Jesus sends an advanced team to this small village to help prepare food and lodging for the 12 disciples when they got there. But then these disciples that he sends ahead, they come back and say, the Samaritan village won't have us. They won't accept us. They don't want us to come. Why? Because they were going to Jerusalem, it says. Because they were set on going to Jerusalem. Now, to give you a little background, if you don't know Samaritan history, to explain why they rejected the disciples and why they ultimately re rejected Jesus, the Jews and the Samaritans in that day were a lot like Jews and Palestinians today. Very long history to ethnic hatred. And it all goes back, ultimately, to when the northern kingdom of Israel became so sinful, so idolatrous, that God, in punishing the northern kingdom of Israel, 
sent the Assyrian Empire to come and destroy the nation. And the Assyrians, the way that they kept the conquered nations from rising up against, what they would do is they deported all the important people, the bad majority of the people, out of the area. And then they took people from other nations that they had defeated and brought them in to populate the area where the, the Jews had been. And so what you ended up with is a handful of Jews and a larger body of pagans together. And what they come up with is not only a mixed culture, but a mixed religion. And they were, in the eyes of the Jews, rightly so, viewed as like a cult because they had their own scriptures. They had a, a corrupted version of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, that they considered their Bible. And they had their own temple. They set up their own temple for, for worship on Mount Gerizim. And so they had become a different religion. And it was a corruption of the true Old Testament Jewish religion. And so that's where it all started. Well, then you remember that when Ezra came to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, when he led the exiles back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, the Samaritans said, hey, we'll come and help you. We'll be a part of that. And rightly, Ezra said, you're not one of us because you're not believing the true scriptures and believing in the true God. You're not one of us. So he rejected their help. And so that deepened the division between the two. And then when Nehemiah came to build the walls around Jerusalem, remember the Samaritans fought against them, tried to get it stopped, and then actually fought against them in the process of rebuilding the walls. What we know from outside of biblical history is about 200 years before the time of Christ, the Jews actually went and destroyed the false temple on Mount Gerizim. And you can imagine how well that went over with the Samaritans. And so these two groups of people hated each other. And at the time of Christ, it was intense. And so that's the background of this. So they knew that the, Jesus and his disciples, I don't know how much they knew about who Jesus was, but they knew that he was going to Jerusalem to worship, to be, go to the temple. And so they wouldn't receive him. Well, when John hears the report, James and John, he brings his brother James with him, and James and John come to Jesus and ask him, do you want us to call down fire on this little village? Call down fire from heaven. Have the fires of God's wrath come and destroy this little village to make a point about rejecting the true Messiah. Now you know why Jesus nicknamed James and John the sons of thunder. These disciples still had no clue about the true nature of why Christ came the first time. Jesus has been trying to tell them. He was going to Jerusalem to suffer and die. He wasn't going to Jerusalem to overthrow the Roman Empire. He wasn't going to Jerusalem to set up an earthly throne and establish an earthly kingdom. That's not why he came. He came to suffer and die and be raised on the third day. What the disciples were looking for was the day of the Lord. The day when fire from heaven would fall upon the earth and destroy all of God's enemies. And then the kingdom on earth and the new heavens and new earth would be established. James and John, remember, had just come from the Mount of Transfiguration. They had seen not only Jesus displayed in all of his heavenly glory, but they had seen Elijah and Moses. And Elijah was able to call down fire from heaven. Remember, he called down fire from, from heaven on 50 soldiers who came to bring him to the wicked king. He called down fire from heaven to consume the, the sacrifice on the altar when he fought against the, the prophets of Baal. And so James and John said, Lord, you're the Messiah. If Elijah could do this, then surely you can do greater displays of God's judgment upon his enemies. 
But Jesus rebukes James and John, it says. He doesn't rebuke them for their faith in him. I mean, that, that takes faith. They believed that Jesus had that power and authority. They believed that he was the Messiah. Their faith in him was genuine. It was real. And they weren't wrong about God's judgment being poured out on the earth on the day of the Lord. Their doctrine was correct. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, it says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. This day is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. Judgment day is coming. And it is not loving to withhold that message from the world that at this moment is under his wrath. The people who have rejected the Son of God, the Messiah, but Jesus, again, patiently tries to teach him, this is not why I came the first time. This is not why he was there 2,000 years ago, to bring the judgment of God. He said it clearly, John 12, verse 47, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. John 3, verses 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have ever eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. What James and John didn't fully understand is that if God, the fires of God's wrath came upon the, the world to destroy all who were under the wrath of God for their sins, there would be nobody left on earth because Christ had to die for the sins of his people. So how does this apply to us? We do need to come apart from the world and be separate, according to 2 Corinthians 6. We do need to divide from those who reject Christ, not geographically, not spatially, but divide in the sense that we are loyal to Christ. He is our king, and they have rejected him. That creates a division because he is the dividing point of history. He's the dividing point of mankind. How do we handle this division? What does it look like? It's what Paul calls speak the truth in love. That's how we handle that division. We don't deny the truth. We don't hide the truth. We don't keep the truth from the world. We are here to tell the world the truth about who Jesus is and why he came and how they can be saved. Because this is the day of grace. This is the day for the gospel to get out. This is the day to get the warning out and to point people to Christ. Speak the truth in love. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for the, what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You see, we go forth as people who understand that we deserve the wrath and judgment of God. We deserve to be consumed by the fires of God's wrath and judgment. We deserve that, but he, by his grace alone, has chosen us, has redeemed us, has called us to himself, and made us his children. We ought to go forth humbly, not with a sense of superiority, not with a sense of, you know, we're the special ones, you need to become special like us. We go out and say, we are except for the grace of God, the same place you are, but he has shown us the way to be saved in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything we say to the world that we divide from because of the rejection of Christ, everything we say to them must be given in a tone of humility, a tone of grace, a tone of compassion, because this is the day of salvation. This is the day to call people, point them to Christ with love and compassion and humility. Humility. 
So let me take you back to our original questions. What is worth dividing over? What is worth dividing over? It is not our ethnicity, not our identity in any worldly sense, not our social economic class, not our political views. The only thing that should divide to humanity is Jesus Christ, who he is and what he came to do. That's what divides all of humanity. The gospel, salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. That's what divides all of us. When necessary divides happen, how are we to handle it? We are to stay faithful to the truth of Scripture. We are to love our enemies. We are to warn them of God's coming judgment in compassion and love for them and plead with them out of love to look to Christ as their Savior. There's a lot of harsh, angry, demeaning, mocking, belittling dialogue going in our culture right now. That should not be the tone of the church. It is not the attitude behind preaching the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for saving us. Forgive us for not sharing this truth, the truth about who Jesus is and why he came. Forgive us for so many occasions when we had opportunity to share that truth with those who need to hear it, and we failed to do so. Forgive us for also sinfully dividing from our brothers and sisters in Christ. Forgive us for the ways in which we have blended into the world instead of staying apart from the world. But Lord, it takes a lot of wisdom. It takes a lot of discernment to know what it means to be in the world, but not of it. Lord, we need to be friends with those who need to know Christ. We need to be in their lives. We need to share good things with them, things that are pleasing in your sight. We need to share with them and be a part of everything that they are doing so that we can know them and, and share Christ with them. But Lord, help us to know where the Lordship of Christ means we need to draw lines. And Father, I pray that you would cause us to grow deeper in your word, but to do so in a way that is humble and that keeps the focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray in Christ's name, amen.